Good morning, church. We're going to kick things off with a Memorial Day special for you guys. So just hope you enjoy. If you're reading this And my mama's sitting there Looks like I only got a one-way ticket over here I sure wish I could Give you one more kiss War was just a game we played when we were kids well, I'm laying down my guns, hanging up my boots. I'm up here with God, and we're both watching over you. So lay me down in that open field out on the edge of town. If you're reading this, I'm already home. If you're reading this, halfway around the world, I won't be there to see the birth of our little girl. I hope she looks like you, and I hope she fights like me. Stands up for the innocent and the weak. Well, I'm laying down my gun, hanging up my boots. Tell Dad I don't regret that I followed in Out on the 
If you're reading this, I'm already home. Zach Neese writes these words. People of God, even if you're not an official pastor at a church, you are still a priest. It is not the pastor's job to digest and regurgitate the word of God for you. It is your responsibility and honor to come daily to the labor and wash yourselves in the water of the word. One of the reasons that the body of Christ is so immature, unwise, and ignorant of the truth is because most Christians fast from the word all week long, then live off of the crumbs of another man's table. There's no such thing as a body that can grow strong and mature by eating scraps once a week. It will be malnourished. The body of Christ cannot grow that way either. We cannot live off the leftovers from our pastor's relationships with God. We must each learn to come to God ourselves and let him fill our plates, and then we must pick up our forks and feed ourselves. In the same way, we cannot expect to stay clean when we wait for our pastors to bathe us once a week. A mature, healthy body bathes itself. First Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's all stand up. Turn away from those things that are not enough and proclaim God's goodness because he is enough. Nothing is 
Let's just continue to sing to the Lord this morning. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days, I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up, till I lay my head, I will see of the goodness of
the goodness of God. I will sing of the goodness of God. Oh, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think your life, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are.
Serious though, I know we've talked about Memorial Day a little bit. I do want to always encourage you as a family to, to have some conversations with you know children around the dinner table uh, about what this weekend means. Uh, I personally do not have any family members who have served, but but I know that in our country we are where we are because there have been men and women who are willing to lay down their lives. And the Bible talks about that, right? The Bible tells us that no greater love is there than the willingness to lay down your life for other people. And so this weekend, we get caught up in the, the three-day weekend and the unofficial start of summer and all of those things, and they're not bad within themselves, okay? But this weekend is about remembering the sacrifices that were made. That's why we do this every single week, because Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for you and I. And without this sacrifice right here that we, we pause weekly to remember, nothing else, nothing else matters. And we live in the country that we live in because of the men and women, the families who have made sacrifices for them. So I encourage you to have some conversations uh, with your families about this. All right? All right, let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather as a body. God, God, you know it's vacation season. We've got a lot of people on the road right now. Lord, we pray for their safety. God, we pray that as they go to the beach and they go to Disney World and they go wherever else they're going, God, you, you watch over, you protect them. You bring them back to us safe. Lord, I pray that there's a time of renewal for these people. We are vacationing right now this week. God, we're here today. It's us. So, Father, we want to hear from you. As we open up your word, pray to God that Meets us where we are. But speak to us, God. Thank you for hearing us. We love you and pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, let me introduce myself to a couple of you. My name is Michael Sykes. I am the senior minister here. We are glad that you are here to worship with us today. We do ask that if you are visiting, you fill out this connection card, uh, give us some basic information. And I'll tell you this if you will, right after the service, uh, bring this connection card to the desk that's out here. We've got a wonderful gift, a gift that even our own church people, our own members aren't allowed to have. Um, so if you'll take it to them after the service, we've got a gift for you. We promise not to harass you a whole lot uh, after this weekend, uh, but we're grateful that you are here. Does the name Truett Cathy ring a bell to anybody? All right, we got one, we got two, we got a couple over here. We knew you guys would do it. Truett Cathy, right? Man, Truett Cathy, I remember going, had this opportunity uh, in Bible college, Amanda and I went to Atlanta Christian College, which was uh, in East Point, Georgia, just out of a uh, suburb of Atlanta, and just right next to East Point, Caleb went to the same school, just next to East Point was a town called Hateful, and Hateful had this restaurant called the Dwarf House, all right? And let me tell you, the Dwarf House was responsible for my freshman, like, 45, okay? Uh, the Dwarf House was the stuff, and we even went to a uh, a spring picnic for the school one time. We show up and, you know, it's a typical small college. Uh, it, it, it's at a park and we're going to do some kickball and some softball and different games. And 
There's going to be all kinds of food at this picnic and everything. And up comes this Ford Explorer with the words Chick-fil-A inside. And man, they popped the back of that thing up and it was nothing but chicken sandwiches and fries. And you're talking about a bunch of college-age kids who's like, let's see, we can come over here and play kickball or we can just keep coming back and grabbing Chick-fil-A sandwiches. And man, we raided the back of this Ford Explorer. We took every chicken sandwich that we could get our hands on, and we kept them stocked up in the refrigerator for days, and it was glorious. And the people who showed up, right, had the last name Kathy. They were the sons of this man, Truett Kathy, who's the founder of Chick-fil-A. And Truett was, he was revolutionary when it came to the fast food. Right? Like everybody else is doing burgers, he's going to do chicken. He's got his little place there in Hateful called the Dwarf House, and it literally had like a little door like this right here for the longest time, and that's what you had to go through. You had to walk through the little dwarf door to get back in. It was open 24 hours. It's the only Chick-fil-A in America that you can actually get a hamburger at. Just FYI. So if you're ever in the Atlanta area, stop by the Dwarf House, get you a hamburger, good hamburger at the chicken place. But they're known for their chicken. They're known for... For, for um, you know, they're, they're known for what they do and they do it well, right? And so Truett was the first guy that said, hey, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna take this restaurant idea and we're gonna stick it in a mall because malls are the things, the places to be, at least back in the day. And so he's like, I'm going to put restaurants in these malls that have this space and I'm gonna be the only one there. And for the longest time, like he's the guy that started the whole food court thing. And then he, then he branched into airports and that kind of stuff. And so Truett Kathy's like, that's, that's how his business really took off. And so they used to only be in malls before they were actually standalones. And so his business took off, and, and, and Chick-fil-A is what Chick-fil-A is, and it's, it's, it's an amazing company. You go to their corporate headquarters, and one thing you're going to notice about the corporate headquarters is there's no doors on any of the offices because they have an open uh, door policy. So you can come into my office. You talk to me about whatever it is that needs to be talked about. And I remember sitting and getting the opportunity to listen to Truett speak one time. And he's speaking at this leadership thing at my home church growing up. I actually went back just for this opportunity. And, and, and he's talking about the structure of his business. And he's, he's talking about the whole, you know, when, when they're getting ready to launch new restaurants and new ideas, he, he's sitting there and he's like, I got all these high-paid execs, and they're sitting in a room, and they're talking about the next couple of things that we need to be working on, and, and all this kind of stuff, and, and Truett goes, well, how about this? I got a great idea. If I'm the founder of this company, instead of all those gimmicks, what if we just start working on customer service? What if, like, we become the standard when it comes to customer service? What if we have the cleanest restrooms, what if we have the cleanest playground for kids to play on? And what if we are just the most polite people? And they're like, Truett, that'll never work. He's like, well, too bad. We're going to do it anyway. And, of course, the rest is history. And so I got to listen to Truett Captain speak at my home church one time. I thought, man, this guy is just going to lay it out for us. He's going to give us all these leadership tips and all this stuff. And he really talked about one thing. The whole night. And it's this verse found in Proverbs. He says it's his life verse. It's the thing 
that outside of his relationship with the Lord, it's the thing that is the most important thing to him. I'm going to read it for you. Proverbs 22. Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. He's like, my whole life was never about the silver or the gold. But my whole life has been about having a great reputation. A reputation that when people hear my name, they have nothing bad to say. And that was his life's goal. To have a good reputation over the silver and gold. And we know how that worked out. He's got the silver and gold of his family. Good reputation. So there was a king. Let me just shift here. There was a king from the line of Solomon, which means the line of David, named Hezekiah. Maybe you have heard his story. Hezekiah's dad, now here's the thing, Hezekiah's dad was known as one of the worst kings of Judah. Hezekiah's son is known as the worst king of Judah. And so you got Hezekiah right here in the middle. You got his, his dad here before him and his son who comes after him. And, and then you have like Hezekiah. And, and, and Hezekiah was different from his father and his son. And we really don't know why the Bible doesn't elaborate on this other than the fact that the, the father, Ahaz, completely turned his back on God. As a matter of fact, when I say he turned his back on God, they decided to worship other gods, and they completely removed every bit of evidence of Jehovah God. Okay? Like, they shut down the temple. They, they, they got rid of anything that commemorated God. Hezekiah comes on the scene. He's different. Let me just read a little bit of his story. It's not coming up on the screen just yet. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became the king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. In the very first month of the first year of his reign, so right out of the gate, Hezekiah reopened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He summoned the priests and the Levites to meet him at the courtyard east of the temple. He said to them, listen to me, you Levites. Purify yourselves and purify the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all the defiled things from the sanctuary. Our ancestors were unfaithful and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They abandoned the Lord and his dwelling place. They turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors to the temple's entry room. They snuffed out the lamps. They stopped burning incense and presenting burnt offerings at the sanctuary of the God of Israel. That is why the Lord's anger has fallen upon Judah and Jerusalem. He has made them an object of dread, horror, and ridicule, as you can see with your own eyes. Because of this, our fathers have been killed in battle, and our sons and daughters and wives have been captured. But now I will make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, do not neglect your duties any longer. The Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to lead the people in worship, and to present offerings to him. 
Well, that, that's how we're introduced to Hezekiah. So we learn a lot about his dad, Ahaz. I mean, he shut the temples. Like, not only did he shut the temples down, but he pretty much ransacked the temples, and he made them to where you couldn't even get in. They, they, they took out anything that, that honored God. They destroyed those things. And, and, and the temple was considered to be an impure place. And Hezekiah comes on the scene, and for whatever reason, we don't really have this insight. He is different. He comes along, and he institutes the Passover. They haven't done the Passover in years. He institutes several of the other feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and First Fruits. Uh, all of these Old Testament feasts that, that you and I read about and hear about, and, and by the way, the significance of those things is they all point to Christ, right? And we're not getting into that right now. But, but they weren't just rituals for the sake of rituals. All of these feasts pointed to the coming of Jesus Christ. Ahaz also did away with all the weekly rituals. Like we wouldn't need to come to church. I mean, he, he ransacked the church. He destroyed it. He, he took it down. We wouldn't be able to have communion. We wouldn't be able to do these things. And, and that, that's just who Hezekiah's dad was. And it was pretty much a godless society. And because of this, God has turned his back. Maybe you and I are walking through life right now. And maybe as we read stories about what's going on in our world right now, sometimes you and I might feel that we are living in a godless society. But here's the deal. God didn't just turn his back because Hezekiah's dad did away with everything. God turned his back because the people were so willing. They willingly followed the king. They too were influenced by the culture around them, and they too got rid of God out of their personal lives. So Hezekiah steps on the scene, and he says, no more. He puts God back on the throne, and for almost 30 years, there is prosperity and there is safety. Hezekiah made God the most important thing. Second Chronicles 30. This is what happened. This is coming up here. There was great joy in the city, for Jerusalem had not seen a celebration like this one since the days of Solomon. You catch that? There was great joy in the city, for Jerusalem had not seen a celebration like this one since the days of Solomon. Do you know how long it was between Solomon's reign and Hezekiah's reign? 215 years. For 215 years, each king following Solomon got a little bit further away and a little bit further away. And then you'd have a king that might do some good, and he might bring you back right over here a little bit, but then a little bit further away, and a little bit further away. And they would just tolerate a little bit more, and tolerate a little bit more. And they would keep pushing God away to the point that 215 years have now passed, and the people of Judah have not experienced this type of You can read the whole story of Hezekiah. I can't, I can't get into all of it. In 2 Chronicles chapters 29 through 34. Let me tell you how favorite. I'm going to have to share this with you. It's not even part of my sermon. Let me just share this with you. This is how favorite Hezekiah was as king. Hezekiah is doing his king thing. 
Isaiah is a prophet. All right, we also read, read his book. His, he served, Isaiah served as Hezekiah served as king. Okay, so you got Hezekiah king, and you got Isaiah. He's like his, his, his advisor over here. Okay, and things are great. There's prosperity, there's safety. Well, the Assyrians decide that, hey, they're going to come attack Hezekiah. And Hezekiah's worried because the Assyrian nation, they, they're, they're just running through everybody, and they're trying to take over the world. And Hezekiah is like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And Isaiah is like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And Hezekiah is like, we're going to seek out. And so you, you've got another prophet in there, and, and Isaiah and Hezekiah, and we're just going to start praying. We're going to start praying, and they just start praying. And, and you know, when it comes to battle, God will do some really cool things. Like He'll take two people, he'll send them out there with a bone from an animal, and they'll just annihilate a thousand people. And you're like, whoa, what happened? But they, they was in so, Hezekiah was in such favor in, in God's eyes that God just said, don't even worry about it. You're going to wake up tomorrow, I'm going to send an angel. And this angel shows up, and this angel just kills 185,000 people. So when Hezekiah woke up, and they looked out, like all these, these military people, they're camped out everywhere, they're all dead. 185,000 angels just came down from the sky. This is what 2 Chronicles 31.20 says about Hezekiah. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah. And he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments seeking his God, he did with all his heart and he Prosper. Church, I'm here to tell you, I was reading through this, and that word in verse 20, that word good, has me thinking, what was it that was written about Hezekiah that this man is known for being good and faithful in the eyes of God? Like, like what is it? You know, because in our culture, the word good is used, or maybe it's even overused in our everyday vernacular. Right? I mean, like, we, we, we use good all the time. It, it's used to the point that it, it's even been watered down because of the many ways we use it. Man, have y'all seen those windows at the church? Man, they look good. Don't worry, we got a call coming to the window world. We got some things you got to look at. Don't worry. I don't mean to be able to see out those windows. I don't know if they're preaching, but that's just more distractions. And we, all know I don't need, we all know I don't need any more distractions. But we say it all the time. Man, that sounded good. We say, good luck. I kissed my wife this morning and said, hey, goodbye. I'll see you at church. Don't be late. Right? Like, I mean, that's what I said. We say, good riddance. Say, good for you. Have a good time. So far, so good. Now that's what you're thinking right now. Like, like so far, so good. The sermon. Have a good weekend. We say that. Be a good sport. Okay, we say that in football season. I say that like y'all think. Say as good as gold. Say as good as it gets. Say, hey, I'm, I'm in, a, I'm in a good mood. In our language, good has a different meaning based on the context of the phrase 
that it's being used with having a good time, right? Really, what we're saying is you enjoy yourself. I agree with play golf last night. Have a good time. Right? Enjoy yourself. So far, so good. Which, which we're really we're saying, hey, everything to this point is satisfactory. Right? So, I mean, you guys are sitting there and you're thinking, hey, so far to this point, you know, we haven't preached too long. You know, we haven't stepped on any toes yet. So, so far, so good. But then we know that, uh, we knew it was too good to be true. We got long winded. It's difficult to believe. It's said of this man, All this matters for you and I because we are on this journey to lifelong change. It's becoming like Jesus. Like, like when you surrendered your life, when you're at that moment in time, for me it was at church camp when I was 13 years old. I just jumped up from the bench and, and uh, they were singing the Celebrate Jesus song, Celebrate Jesus, and do that funny clap thing and all that kind of stuff. And, and I just jumped up from the bench and I went and talked to the guys and I'm ready to give my life to the Lord. When, whenever that moment of conviction is and, and you are asking God into your life and you are obedient to baptism and the God promises you that you're going to be given the Holy Spirit. At that moment of surrender begins a journey for you and I becoming like Jesus. Like it's not like I just get to keep living my life the way I'm living my life. At that moment, God's like, I've claimed you, I want you, but I don't want you just as you are. I want you to live this new life of you becoming like Jesus. And so that's what we're doing. We're looking at the characteristics of Jesus. We're looking at the very traits that make the man who he is. And so Jesus is like, y'all can't do it on your own down there, so I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. It's going to come, it's going to dwell within you. And when you live your life by the Spirit, when you surrender your life to, to the Spirit, it's going to produce fruit in your life. So let's read it. We've read it every week so far. Let's read it again. Shall we read this last week? we got to read it twice. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, we also keep in step with the Spirit. And so today, we are talking about this goodness that is to be part of the fruit gives us that, that that comes from who we are. And so in the original language, since we have this broad sense of the, the word good and therefore goodness comes from that, in the original language, the Greek word agothosini is the Greek word for goodness. Agothosini. And this is what it means. Moral excellence characterized by our interest in others' welfare. I'm not making this up. This is not some agenda of mine to, to continue to talk about relationships and the importance of relationships. The Greek word, agothosimi, means moral excellence characterized by our interest in others' 
And that's the key. Interest in others' welfare. And so as we surrender our lives to Jesus, Lord, you, you're in control of my life, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, and I'm going to live the way you want me to live. And as this happens, the Spirit that's been promised to you and I is going to start to bear fruit that helps us to resemble or helps you and I to become like Jesus. And one of those characteristics, church, is this moral excellence. It's played out in the interest in other people's welfare. And here's the cool thing about this. And you break down and you study the fruit of the Spirit. And last week, Mike taught on the previous fruit of the Spirit. That was kindness. Kindness and goodness are related. Similar to the relationship with joy and peace. We talked about joy and peace a couple weeks ago. Those two kind of work hand in hand. If you've got a joyful person, I promise you there's going to be some peace in their life. If you've got a peaceful person, there's going to be some joy in their life. Those two are intertwined. It's the same way with kindness and goodness. They flow together because they are others-focused. The word kindness means someone who is warm-hearted and considerate toward others. Now y'all know why I took last week off. Goodness is someone who is morally excellent toward outsiders. Me becoming like Jesus hinges upon my, my morally excellent and warm-hearted treatment of other people. Let me say that again. Me becoming like Jesus hinges upon my morally excellent and warm-hearted treatment of other people. So let me ask you. How do you treat people? How, how do you treat the people in your house, the closest to you. All right, next week we get into some gentleness and we talk about self-control. We got some tough ones coming up. Right? But how do we treat the people out there? How do we treat the people that get, get that little rub? How do we treat those customers? How do we treat those employees? Are, are we going into the world and are we treating people with morally excellent and warm-hearted motives? And I said this a few weeks back, and I'll say it again today. When we read the fruit that the Spirit produces in our lives, don't you want to hang out with that person? Like, I mean, don't you want to hang out with a person that has love and a person who's full of joy and a person that's kind of got a lot of peace going on in their lives? I definitely want to hang around people who are patient, right? And, and, and I love kind people. Like, I... I love being around kind people and good people and gentle people. Like, isn't that who we would like to hang around? Now, we're not talking about sticking the muds and don't ever have any fun, right? But, but we're talking about, we, I want to I wanna be around these people. Well, here's my question to you. Are you these kind of people to others in the world? Next year, I've already talked about this. I'm not, I'm not. This is already written into the sermon. We're going to Georgia next year. Our, our ladies are talking about this. Conference up in Pigeon Forge. They had a great time this past year. So they came back in a couple of life groups, you know, and, and some of these ladies are sitting there and they're talking, and one of the things that they said needs to happen next year that didn't happen this year 
is that they all need to ride together in the same vehicle. Which means we gotta rent a, a van, right? Because there's like 10 or 12 going right now. And so we gotta, we gotta rent a van. And, and I'm sitting in my living room Sunday night a couple weeks back, and Amanda's there, and Jessica's there, and they both went this year, and they came to me, and they're like, they're sitting there in front of everybody, and they're like, hey, we need you to drive us next year. And I'm like, well, say what? And they're like, yeah, that would be awesome. Like, you drive us, and like, you, you could be our own personal chauffeur, so we wouldn't have to pay for parking at the thing. You could just drop us off and then, and then go do your thing. And I'm like, it's Pigeon Forge. I, I despise Pigeon Forge. No offense to you, Pigeon Forge. Well, I've just been there enough. Like, I've, I've, I've done it in my life, and if I don't ever have to go back to Pigeon Forge again, hallelujah. Okay? But, but, but they're like, no, just think about it. You can drive us, and, and we, we, could, we could maximize our opportunities in the van. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, we with 12 women in Pigeon Forge. Um, and then Jessica plays this part. James can go with you, and you can be intentional with James, Michael. Y'all can hang out, and it could be you and James. And so now James and I are in this mix, and we're listing out all the reasons that we would be bad chauffeurs. Like, like I mean, we, we, we are overselling it, and we're just saying, here's all the reasons we don't need to be this person. And then this name came up. We should get paid to drive us. And James and I are like, amen. Yes, you should. You should ask him right now. You should beg Perry to go before he planned something. You should tell Perry. And here's, here's why. And, and, and once Perry came on the scene, like James and I got booted to the curb quickly. Like, like, like they immediately realized, oh, there's a much better option than Michael or James to drive us, and it is Perry. Because here's the thing. Perry, as you all know, he's a good guy. I mean, like, he is morally excellent and considerate of other people. Like, and we started talking about Perry at our group. And I know we're supposed to, what said group supposed to stay at group, but I've already told Perry that I'm going to brag about him some right now. Perry's the kind of guy that, okay, ladies, tomorrow we need to leave at, you know, 7.30, and we, you know, I'll have breakfast for you. Okay, and the lady's like, okay, and Perry goes out on his own. Like, this is the kind of guy that Perry is. He goes, I've got 12 women. Ooh, what do they want for breakfast? Well, they're women. They don't know what they want for breakfast. And so Perry's not the kind of guy that's just going to go to Bojangles and get 12 biscuits and hash browns and bring it back. Perry is going to be the guy that goes to Bojangles and gets biscuits, and then the hot sign's on a Krispy Kreme. He comes over here because some of them might like Krispy Kreme donuts, too. And he comes over here and he gets a dozen donuts, and he, he brings it to them. Right? Like, that's the kind of guy Perry is. And all of you are sitting there, you're like, I'm getting a lot of nods right now, Perry, because that's what people think of you. They're like, I could see Perry doing that. Right? Michael is going to give you, like, some granola bars from, you know, the quick trip on the way up there. That's what you get for breakfast, because you didn't tell me what you wanted for breakfast. Not Perry. Because that's the that's the reputation he has. He has this reputation of being kind and warm-hearted and, and 
considerate for the people. Church, I'm here to tell you, as followers of Jesus, we are to be known for our good works. I put Bible school here. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, hey, you and I, followers of Jesus, we, we're his workmanship. And then what's the very next thing? Created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works. And who are those works for? Am I supposed to do good works for Michael? No. My good works, if there's ever a good work in me, it's always for the benefit of other people. That's how they work. Because what is goodness? What is the very root of being good? Being considerate and mindful of other people. Paul told Timothy, hey, you should be rich in good works. I mean, he's giving him all this list and these instructions of how to live, and you know what's the one thing you should be rich in? Good works towards other So you and I don't have an excuse. We, we can't look at the list of the fruit, you know, the fruit of the Spirit there and say, you know what, uh, kindness, you know, I'll kind of temper that one over here a little bit. I'll be kind sometimes and, and goodness. No, these are to be evident in our lives as we surrender to the Lord. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Right out of the gate. He's receiving these messages from God. And one of the first messages, Isaiah 117, he says this, and he's saying this to the people of Judah. He's saying this to, who was Isaiah a prophet for? Who was he an assistant to? Hezekiah. Learn to do good. That's what he says. We, we are to learn to do good. We, we are to embrace this idea, and we are to learn to do good to other people. And the rest of the verse is this. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. That's what Isaiah says. So there's a whole lot of injustice going on around this time. You can imagine in a godless society, a society where God is put on the back burner, he's been ousted altogether. There was a lot of injustice. There was a lot of oppression. There was a lot of neglect for, for people who were uh, orphans and widows. He tells the instruction is to, hey, Hezekiah and to others, you need to learn to do good. And so today, do you know who the oppressed are? Do you know who the oppressed in our Western civilization is? We can pick this apart, but at the end of the day, the oppressed are the people who do not share the same values as you and I. It's people who live in rebellion to God. Ultimately, that is who the oppressed is people that do not have a relationship with the Lord. And Isaiah says, These are the So Hezekiah steps into leadership of God's kingdom and he learned to do good. He made the most of God in front of other people. 
I'm going to put God back on the throne. I'm going to make God a priority, and I'm going to use every ounce of influence that I have to make it a priority for other people. And you know what? You and I, we, we may not have the influence that King Hezekiah had over everybody, but you and I have influence. We have influence in our homes. We have influence in our community groups. We have influence in in our work or in our office. You may be like, no, I don't. I'm telling you, yes, you do. And we are to learn to do good. And as Hezekiah lived this out, it benefited an entire nation. And for 30 years, for 30 years, they experienced a joy, a prosperity, and that they had never experienced before. And so Jesus tells it like this. Right? His words, not mine. This is coming in Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is giving a whole lot of stuff there. I mean, if you're a note taker back in the day, man, you are, you are writing a lot of things down. He says this in verse 13. You were the, the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here we go. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Read verse 16 again. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father in heaven. I know that this seems counterintuitive to most of us right now. Most of us are tricky. Hey, let me let me show my acts of kindness and generosity and goodness, and let me keep it a secret. And the Bible talks about that. Jesus actually uses this in the same Sermon on the Mount. He talks about keep you know, don't let the right hand know what the left hand's doing. We shouldn't we shouldn't be doing this. But then he comes right here and he says, Hey, you know what? Your works, your good deeds, the things that you do to point out that, that the spirit is living in you and the, the trait of goodness is, is being developed in you, you need to do that so that others may see. There's other people who benefit from this. And here's what Jesus is saying. We don't need you bragging about all your good stuff. We don't need Perry standing up at the end of the service Throwing the way out the door. You got that right. I'm the kindest person here. I'm morally excellent. We don't need Perry doing that at all. All right? Because then he just does away with everything he did. But we do need Perry. We need everyone else. Doing these good works so that other people will see them. In church, I can go around the room. I can talk about Kyle's Village. Swinging by my house one time, dropping a gift card in my mailbox. Right? 
I can talk about Barry. Man, Barry is driving 180 miles with me this week to camp in Mississippi to cut grass. It's going to cost him $500. Right? And we go around the room. We talk about Michelle and the work that she's done in our nursery. I mean, we talk about the littles. I mean, it, it, we can do this. And it's important that we let our good works be seen by other people because then God is given this glory. So don't call attention to yourselves. Let other people do that. But our morally excellent acts toward outsiders should be done in the spirit of the living and living Jesus. And this is why I'm doing it. So how do we respond to that? Well, here's your, here's your son. I mean, who, who's your neighbor? Who's the co-worker? Who's the family member? Who's the person in your life that is living in rebellion to God? Maybe they're, maybe they're a believer. Maybe they're just having a prodigal son moment. Here's how we respond. We identify those people, and then we figure out a way to be morally excellent and considerate of them, even though it may not make sense. So God, that's our prayer right now. We walk out of this room. We hang out with family, we have cookouts, and we do different things this rest of the day and tomorrow, God. I, I pray that we walk out of here with a sense of desiring for goodness to, to dwell within us, uh, to be a fruit of the Spirit. Let us realize, God, that goodness is for the benefit of other people. so let us not hold back. God, there's a lot of good people in here that do a lot of things in secret. We're grateful for that. God, I pray that thinking of others who are in need of you will experience our goodness of We draw attention to you. We love you, God.